You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Verses 1 through 32. If you want to take a second to turn there in your Bible or pull it up on your phone, it's the fifth book of the New Testament if that helps you find it quicker. Um, Again, Acts 26, verses 1 through 32. If you will, um, and if you're able, will you please rise for the reading of God's Word this evening? So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and we are looking at the book of Acts again. Uh, we're getting close to the end, and uh, we are still in the trial scene of uh, the Apostle Paul, and he um, got to Jerusalem a few weeks ago, and since that time, he's been on trial. He's been on trial, uh, this is about the, the fourth time he's been on trial, so it's a lot like Jesus, the way at the end of his life he was on trial. In fact, the book of uh, Acts is written similar to the book of Luke by the same author, and uh, the book of Luke is the story of what Jesus uh, began to do when he was on earth. And the book of Acts is what he continued to do when he got to heaven. And so the book of Acts is really a story of how Jesus is taking over the world. It's the, it's the first uh, step in his conquest of the world. A conquest of love, not of the sword, but of grace through persuasion, through witness. Like this conversation that Paul is having with Festus and Agrippa. This is the way that Jesus spreads his his rule and his reign across the earth through conversation. And uh, what we see is uh, someone like Paul, who is exhibit A of the power of Jesus, the risen Jesus, because Paul is a man uh, whose life was completely turned upside down. It was flipped around, it was thrown over, it was blown back, whatever you want to say, but uh, he was going this way and all of a sudden he was going that way. And so there had to be some force that, that hit him and drove him back. And that's what he's saying the resurrection is that force. I, I met the risen Jesus, and that's, that's how my life turned around so much. Um, again, Paul has been in, in prison for two years. And God told him last week 
um, you are going to make it to Rome. So uh, don't be afraid. I'm going to get you to Rome. So I said last week that um, it was kind of like in Mario Kart when you hit the invincibility star. If you know that. Or any video game where you have one of these things where you hit them. And from that point on for a few moments you are impossible uh, to be defeated or to be destroyed or die. That's what's happened here. For, for the, since the time he got that promise from God, Paul has been invincible. And so he is not afraid. The way he talks to Festus and Agrippa, he's not afraid at all. He's filled with confidence, filled with boldness, because he knows he's going to go to Rome. He knows that in Rome he's going to witness to Caesar. Um, So sure enough, Governor Felix, who has been the governor in Caesarea for the last two years, leaves. He's gone now. And Governor Festus comes in. And so Herod Agrippa, the king of the Jews, comes to greet Festus, who's just come in. He's the Roman governor. Felix is gone. Felix was corrupt. He was trying to wait for Paul to bribe him. So for two years, Felix was waiting for Paul to bribe him to get out of jail. Paul wouldn't do it. So Felix is gone. Festus comes in. Festus doesn't know why Paul is in prison. Festus is like, why is this guy? We need to figure out what to do with this guy. So he calls in King Agrippa, who's Jewish. um, And he says, what, why do your people hate Paul so much? What is it about this guy that he's so hated? And so Paul uh, gives this chance to explain himself to Festus and Agrippa. And really, he uses this entire thing to go after Agrippa and try to convert him. He tries, this whole thing is, a, is an attempt to convert King Agrippa to become a Christian. So I want to look at uh, the two parts of this. Number one, the trial itself. And then number two, the accused. Who is actually being accused here? Who is the one on the witness stand? So first, the trial and then the accused. So the trial starts with very typical empire uh, pomp and circumstance. The empire is always trying to make itself look legitimate and to get really big and seem intimidating. So in Acts 25, 23, uh, we didn't read this. It's in the chapter before, but it says, On the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp, He entered the auditorium accompanied by commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. So imagine something like our Supreme Court building. You know, it's built in the Roman style. Uh, So it is meant to intimidate. The Supreme Court building is meant to dwarf you and make you feel like this is legitimate. This is the law. This is like transcendent law. So that's what's going on here. Um, They have come together and brought in Paul. And here's little tiny Paul in chains. Before this, the whole Roman system of law. And the Romans loved the law. So they were one of the most innovative uh, people in the history of the world in terms of uh, bringing forth a, a codifying a law, a system of law. So here's Paul before the Roman legal system. And uh, Paul comes in and he's just as cool as a cucumber. He's like a court jester almost. He's, he comes in and he's, he stretches out his hand almost in a theatrical way in verse 1. He stretches out his hand. I imagine him doing a little bow. And he says, I consider myself fortunate to be before you today. I mean, imagine a a prisoner on trial, on death row, saying something like that. Uh, He knows he's invincible. He's fearless. And the amazing thing about this, he doesn't even address once the charges that are being made against him. He never addresses uh, the, the, the actual charges against him by the Roman Empire of treason, of, of trying to um, bring down Caesar. In fact, even more amazing, he not only doesn't address the charges brought against him, 
he actually brings charges against himself. So if you notice, when he gets up there before Festus and Agrippa, he starts to accuse himself. Now, he's coming from a higher court of law than Rome. So he's no, he, he takes us out of the Roman court of law. He's like, that's not the real justice. That's not the justice system. I'm telling you about the real justice system, about the king of kings, who is the just judge. And in his court of law, I am guilty. So he says in verse 9, I oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he's told his story three times in the book of Acts already. Apparently he went around telling everybody his story of his conversion. And he wanted them to know how sinful he was. He wanted them to know uh, how, much, how much of a rebel he was. How much he hated Jesus and his people. He wants people to know that. Which should tell us something about the way we should talk about Jesus. So he says, I was opposing the name of Jesus. And he explains why in verse 5. He says, I was brought up a Pharisee, the strictest party of our religion. So a Pharisee uh, was the most meticulous, um, strict uh, keeper of uh, religion of any sect out there. Think about the strictest, I don't know, uh, like a small primitive free will Baptist church with tons of rules where you're keeping all these rules. That's what Paul would have been like. Or maybe even uh, a really strict Muslim, like absolutely keeping every single possible rule. He, he despised lawless Christians because he considered them ignorant of the law. He considered them uh, lawbreakers, antinomian, which means opposed to the law. And he even hated more the king who was cursed by the law because Jesus was hung on a tree. And the law says, cursed is everyone who hung, hangs on a tree. So Paul is saying, I hated this whole lawless system. Of Christianity. In verse 10, he goes on to say, I locked up many prison, uh, many saints, many Christians in prison. I even cast my vote to put them to death. He's talking about Stephen, who we met in Acts chapter 8. And he was like, I was the one there laying my cloak at his feet when he was being stoned because I wanted him dead. I hated uh, lawlessness that much. And uh, it made him violent. His legalistic fervor made him violent. It actually made him cruel. In verse 11, he says that I tried to make them blaspheme. Not only did he pound them and try to kill them, he actually, before that, he tried to get them to blaspheme God. I think about in Harry Potter, the Death Eaters, like toying with a muggle just to mess with them and and to make them do something they want to, to show them they're more powerful than them. He was obsessed by the law. And it plunged him into a constant state of simmering anger. He says in verse 11, in raging fury, I hunted them down in foreign cities. He's making charge after charge after charge against himself and his hatred of the Christians. And I mentioned this last week, but I think about Inspector Javert from Les Mis. I mean, the the actual hunting them down kind of language uh, as he's tracking down Jean Valjean, who was the opponent of the law. In Javert's mind, he's this inspector. He sings this song about the stars and how the law brings order to the universe. It takes chaos and brings forth order in the universe. Uh, Javert loves the the law. And in this one song, he says uh, to Valjean, I have hunted you down across the years. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law and the law is not mocked. I'll spit your pity right back in your face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. And so this uh, fervor to have order and law and uh, to do the right thing, it's, um, it's actually something that uh, lives in the heart of every Christian. And I would say every human being. 
This is, a, this is a thing that we all have to be very careful about in ourselves. And especially the more you actually are able to keep the law, which is a good thing. To keep the law is obviously a good thing. The law brings forth life and order. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's sweeter than honey. David compares it uh, to honey. Uh, so the law is very good. But in the zeal to keep it, uh, we become dangerous people like Paul. And uh, there was somebody when I was studying abroad in London at the house we lived in. There were 16 students in one kitchen. And there was this one uh, young woman who um, I never got tired of talking about. I never talked to her. I talked about her to all the other students. But she basically mooched off everybody's food. She never cleaned her dishes. Uh, she wasn't keeping the laws of the kitchen. They were actually written. There were rules written down. This is what you do to bring order. And she was not doing those things. And it drove me crazy. And um, <clears throat> it just, when people don't keep the law, uh, it, I, get, I tend to get very upset. Um, that's deep inside of me. I think that's deep inside all of us. Uh, there's a character, uh, I'm kind of obsessed with this uh, Succession TV show. I'm a few years behind. Uh, I know it came out a while ago. But there's this character named uh, Kendall Roy, one of, the, one of the brothers in the family. And he's this hard-driving, hyper-competent elder brother. And he has this younger brother uh, named Roman who's like a playboy. Uh, he's kind of a fool. And the younger brother, Roman, says that he thinks maybe he should run the company. Uh, Waystar, uh, Royco. Uh, Roman's like, maybe I'd be the best one to run the company. And Kendall's trying to run the company. And Kendall says this to him. He says, Roman, I love you, bro, but you are not a serious human being. And just that phrase, uh, you're not a serious human being. I mean, I've never said that to anybody, but I've thought that about people. And I think that a lot of us have. Uh, I love you, bro, but you're not a serious human being. Like, you don't actually know how to navigate this world. And um, if you're someone who's obsessed with competence and doing things right and being efficient and making sure everything goes uh, just the way it ought to go, then you can get really mad at people who are lazy or entitled. You might even call them snowflakes. People who don't work hard enough. People who are uh, easily thrown off. And you think that they're the problem and that you're against them, but actually what you're against is probably grace. You're probably against grace. Because Paul certainly was. Because in verse 14, the Lord Jesus comes to him and says, Saul, Saul. In other words, I know you well. I know your name. I know your heart. I know what you're like. I know all the things you think about these Christians. I know what you think about me. So he says his name twice, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, you're only hurting yourself by fighting me. That's the New Living Translation. That whole thing about the goads is about an animal. When you're trying to get a horse to go by hitting it with the stirrups, that's what the goad is. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to get you to repent and you're not listening. You're kicking against the goads. Why are you hurting yourself by fighting me? By fighting grace, by insisting on the law, on what's right. So that's the trial. Paul brings charges against himself and says, I was the persecutor of grace. Um, I'm the legalist. That's number one. Number two, the accused. Who is really being accused? Is Paul the one really on the witness stand? He says, I'm not the one on the witness stand. No, it's not me. He says in verse six, I stand on trial because of my hope and the promise that God made to our fathers. That's 
That's what's on trial. He's not on trial. The promise of the king who would rule the world is what's on trial. The promise of a king who would defeat death and condemn condemnation and would save sinners, uh, that's the one who's on trial. So Paul is basically saying to them, uh, I'm not the one you're questioning. You're questioning Jesus. You're questioning resurrection. And Paul says, and I, I can tell you, I know that he's alive. And I can give you proof that he's alive because he threw me down and he raised me back up. Because I was as against him as you could possibly be. And in verse 14, it says, I fell to the ground. And in verse 16, Jesus said, rise up and stand on your feet. And if you become a Christian, you know that you get thrown down and broken and then he brings you back up. He tears you down and builds you back up with grace. He tears down that legalism in you and then he builds you back up with grace. He rebuilds your identity. Paul's entire structure of his ego is transformed by meeting Christ. You ask, you know, how could a man so obsessed with law suddenly turn against it? How could Javert become Valjean? How could could this man who hated grace now be the uh, ultimate proponent of grace? This man who hated the Gentiles now is the apostle of the Gentiles. Um, That's really the basis of his whole defense. Is something happened to me where I was going this way and now I'm going this way 100 miles an hour. And you've got to explain that change. There's got to be some force out there. Um, Derrick Henry is probably the most physically imposing running back in the history of the NFL. Uh, This guy is 247 pounds. He can run a 40-yard dash in 4.5 seconds. And uh, when he hits a hole in a game, gets gets through that front defensive line, when he's at that second level, a linebacker doesn't want to hit him. I mean, he is – it's like people fall backwards. when Usually running backs fall – this way, he, he makes the, the, the linebackers fall that way. He's so powerful. He's so strong. And if you saw Derrick Henry like hit through that hole, he's 10 yards down the field. He's in a kind of a pile where you can't exactly see him. And then all of a sudden, if you imagine that guy just being lifted up off his feet and thrown backwards and dropped to the ground, you'd be like, there's got to be someone who's huge that just hit him. You know, I can't exactly see through that crowd. Maybe it's an obstructive view. Who, who made that hit? But you know there's got to be some explanation, some very powerful person that was there that picked that guy up and threw him back and dropped him to the ground. And Paul says in verse 13, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone around me. A light from heaven brighter than the sun shone around me. The reason that Paul was so dangerous, the reason that they tried to kill him six times is because his life was so inexplicable. They knew this guy is super dangerous because... His life can't be explained without the risen Jesus, this invisible king who throws people backwards, who breaks them and rebuilds them with grace. And it makes me ask, you know, how have I been changed in a way that might make people wonder, what's up with that guy? Like, how did that happen to him? And I'm not saying you have to have some amazing conversion story. It doesn't have to be that at all. It could just be like a year ago, you were this way. And now, a year later, you're completely different because you went through something, because you met the risen Jesus. Maybe, maybe for the hundredth time, but you met him, something happened to you. And so the way that you now go to work, your colleagues, the way they see you working for the kingdom is different. Or the way you treat your wife or your husband is different now because you've been hit by him. Or the way that you parent, the way you show grace to your kids is now something happened to them and they must have had some encounter that I can't explain. Verse 18 
The one who opens our eyes and turns us from darkness to light and enables us to repent. And I think that Festus, the governor of Rome, who had no knowledge of Judaism, he probably was a little bit confused. But I think at some point in this whole conversation, he got alarmed. He got a little nervous because he interrupts Paul. And uh, he says in verse 24, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. So there's something that happened where Festus got really uncomfortable about things Paul was saying. And uh, he could tell that Paul was a genius, but he didn't really like what this genius was saying to him. Uh, Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul's response, again, is so confident and so courteous. Um, It's like his... uh, you know, his feet are up on a, on a desk or something like that. He's leaning back with his hands behind his head. Uh, it's so different from his former life, what he would have said at this point. He just says in verse 25, Festus, most excellent Festus, I'm not out of my mind. I am speaking true and rational words. Uh, and he, again, has no need to defend himself. Just states what is true, factually, simply. He's not intimidated because he knows he's not on trial. That Jesus is on trial. And then I love when he's talking to Festus. He's talking to Festus and he starts addressing Agrippa over here. He says, the king knows these things. And so I speak boldly. And I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For they have not been done in a corner. In other words, Festus, uh, you're welcome to ask around. There's evidence that you're in Caesarea. You can go ask Cornelius. You can go down to the church down there and talk to them. All these people who've met Jesus, all these Jewish people who have turned now to Christ and accepted him as Messiah. It's a public event. There were 5,000 people at once that became Christians that were on a mountain that met him. This is the thing about Christianity that makes it so unique is that it is a very public religion. It didn't happen in a corner. It didn't happen in a cave. You know, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, that was in a cave, one person in a cave. We're talking about something that was extremely public. All over the Roman world, all over Palestine, uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection did not happen in a corner. They happened in Jerusalem. And there is historical evidence that it's true. And you can go investigate that. You can take your time. But the evidence is out there. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And now he's got Agrippa on the witness stand. So Paul's not on trial. And really now even Jesus is not on trial. Agrippa is now on trial. And Agrippa is alarmed. Uh, He feels the presumption. Like, are you cross-examining me? He says in verse 20, do you think you can convert me in such a short time? Me, the king of the Jews? And again, Paul is so relaxed and cheerful. He says, uh, verse 29, I don't care how long it takes. Take your time investigating the evidence. but, But I do want all of you. And he looks around at all the prominent men in the city. He looks around at all of them. He holds up his chains and he smiles. And he says, I want all of you to become like me, except for these chains. So he makes a joke in the middle of his defense uh, when he's on trial for the death penalty. And he holds up his chains and he says, I want you to become like me, except for these chains. He's so confident that even as he's getting hammered with accusation after accusation, trial after trial, he just keeps witnessing to the gracious king. He just keeps turning the attention back to the gracious king. Over and over and over. He's been on trial for two years in a Roman prison. He's totally innocent. Verse 31 says he's done nothing deserving imprisonment. That's what Agrippa says. That's what Festus says. And yet he's not saying a word in his defense. 
He's being completely acquitted. Uh, he's, he's, he's offering total acquittal to all the people around him, even as they accuse him. I saw some of the images of Scott Peterson, you know, the officer at the Parkland shootings, and he was acquitted very recently. And just the, uh, I mean, you might think that was an unjust acquittal. A lot of people do. But that makes it even more like the gospel, that this man, he just broke down in tears. He was completely lost uh, because of what could have happened to him. And now he's acquitted. Now he's not guilty. And so that's what happens to us. You know, we accuse him and accuse him and accuse him and get mad. And uh, he takes it and he takes it and he takes it, our Lord. And yet uh, he just keeps offering us pardon and forgiveness and trying to get in our face and convince us we're forgiven. To convince us you're not guilty. Because Paul lives, as we should live, in a higher court of law. The real Supreme Court is before the judge, the the judge of all the earth, who will always do what is right. And the judge of all the earth became a human being. The judge, the perfect judge, the holy judge, uh, the perfection of the law, the incarnation of the law, the embodiment of all that is right. He became a human being and the judge was judged in our place. The perfect judge was judged and condemned and found guilty in our place so that we could be righteous in him. That's the entire gospel. Is that um, we are no longer guilty because he was guilty for us. Uh, that all of the sins that deserve, we deserve to be punished for, he was punished for those sins. And that's what this table always proclaims. This great substitution. That... God says, I came to take all of your sins upon me. Let me have them. Let me bear them. Let me be condemned for you. And I want to give you my righteousness. I want to give you my perfect legal standing. Like Paul has. That's what this table is about. Remember, we love these rascals.